0: Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. Oh, that this too, too solid flesh
2: would melt thaw and resolve itself into a dew, or that the Everlasting had not fixed his cannon against self-slaughter. Oh, God, God, how weary, stale! So, you
1: really think killing yourself is going to make everybody happy?
2: Who are you?
1: Clarence Oddbody, AS2. AS2? Angel, second class.
2: You seem like the kind of angel I'd wind up with. Why do you
1: say that, Hamlet?
2: Because my uncle killed my father, and now he make sexy time with my mother. My whole life is a failure.
1: No man is a failure if he has friends.
2: Friends? Let me tell you about friends. Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are trying to get me killed.
1: Horatio is your friend.
2: Okay, great. Well, that's one. I've got one friend. Great. I wish everyone else was dead, including
1: me. Oh, you mustn't say things like that. Why not? Because it gives away the whole plot. You know, Hamlet, where I come from, we have a saying. There is nothing, either good or bad, but thinking makes it so.
2: There is nothing either good or bad, but thinking makes it so.
1: Say it one more time.
2: There is nothing either good or bad, but thinking makes it so.
1: Now how do you feel?
2: You know, maybe I should just marry Ophelia, we could have kids, and, and Christmas would be such a happy time when no spirit dares stir abroad. And if my mom is happy right now, then maybe I should just let go of my issues. Claudius will probably punish himself more than I ever could.
1: That's more like it. But you should still off Rosecrans and what's-his-name.
2: Totally, those little weasels are fish food. Thanks, Clarence. This is gonna be the best Christmas ever lights of you guys are going to sing me to my rest every night today on our show our salute to hamlet and now he read for the role of piglet colin McEnroe.
3: this is the moment at which all our guests get the look on their face like maybe they should just get up and run out uh, but <coughs> why has nobody else thought before of merging Hamlet and It's a Wonderful Life? They're basically the same thing. Uh, no, they're not at all. But uh, we are going to be talking about Hamlet today. Uh, we have wonderful guests for you, learned guests. Um, Dr. Trusnik is here with us. He's the Tony Award-winning Artistic Director of Hartford Stage and, most relevantly, the director of the, pr- uh, the production of Hamlet that's up there right now. Humphrey Tonkin is our go-to Shakespeare guy, Professor of English, President Emeritus of the University of Hartford, James Shapiro. He's a professor of English at Columbia University and the author of many books, including, again, most relevantly, 1599, A Year in the Life of William Shakespeare. He's joining us from the studios of Columbia University in New York City. Later in the show, you'll hear a a brief conversation I had earlier this week with Diane Venora, who has the um, unusual distinction of having been Joe Papp's choice for Hamlet. Uh, although that was not that unusual in the 19th century. And since then, she's also, or even prior to that, I guess she was uh, Ophelia to Kevin Klein and she's been Gertrude to Ethan Hawke and Liev Schreiber. So... Uh, she's, you know, she's paid her Hamlet dues, I guess uh, you'd have to say. So before I even invite uh, the guest to speak, though, uh, we were at uh, Hamlet uh, at Herford Stage Company on Tuesday night. Uh, Josh Nilea was with me with his microphone asking random dudes uh, what they thought about Hamlet out in the lobby. Uh, I think you'll probably recognize the voice of one of these. I don't know. Maybe it's only this. What, is it only just this one random dude or are there multiple random dudes in this? A few. OK, so you'll recognize
4: one of them. Here we go.
5: What do you think specifically about Hamlet is relevant in today's
4: world? You know Hamlet is to the world around him almost as Usarian is to the army in Catch 22. He's the person who sees the cravenness of the powerful and the absurdity of the system. He isn't insane, he's the only sane principle in the company if you will uh, on, on that level. And so he's really a person grappling with so many things, but one with that. He is This is one of only two Hamlets I've seen in which there's a great deal of comedy coming from Hamlet himself and it seems like such a right, correct reading of it. But the humor is of a person baffled by the absurdity and the venality of those around him. Uh, Hamlet is probably the only great agnostic character uh, written in his time.
2: (laughs) I think it has a lot to do with the relationship between men and women and how People get along in their families, and truth. People not telling the truth, people trying to hide things, building a house on a lie, and one person finds out the lie, and it all comes down. It happens everywhere.
3: All right, not bad, random people, one of whom was clearly Bill Curry. Um, so um, let's begin uh, with this production itself. And uh, Darko Trushnik, uh there's lots of plays for you to do, and you're going to do a lot of Shakespeare plays over the course of your career. You already have. Why was this the time to do Hamlet? What, what, what was there about Hamlet that you wanted to bring
5: forth? Um, I directed... This is my second production of Hamlet, and last time I did it at the Old Globe in San Diego. And... I was quite pleased given the fact that it was in a big outdoor arena, airplanes flying overhead, animals mating in San Diego Zoo. So when people talk about the inwardness of the title character, you can only explore that so much when you're fighting off the airplanes and the seals. So it was a beautiful um, production, but I always wanted to do it um, indoors under slightly more technically controlled um Circumstances, and I also felt that you know, as a director of Shakespeare, close to twenty-five productions, that um, I should have two or three dates with Hamlet in my life. So now at Hartford Stage, where as an artistic director, I can I can set things up to my satisfaction, especially when it comes to casting. As a freelance director, that's harder. So um, it seemed like a good time to um, you know to take a second stab at it, so to speak. <laughs> Um, and we're
3: going to talk more about what that stab is, but as, actually, as long mm. as we're on the subject, um, Humphrey Tonkin, uh, you seemed, based on your email anyway, tw- quite transported uh, by this Hamlet. What was it that you thought you were seeing in, in Darko Trushnik's specific vision of the play?
6: Um, well, because I don't want to give too much away, but... spoilers. Um, spoilers. There may be lots of people who want to be surprised by, by Hamlet and how it ends, but um, the thing that I found most impressive about this Hamlet was its sheer ambiguity, mm. which may seem an odd thing to say, but it's a, play about, um, it's a play about the collision of the past and the present. And I think Darko's production brought that out very clearly. The past and the present, uh, you mean what by that? Um, well, Hamlet is, uh, Hamlet's off at a university. Mm. Um, not only is, it he, is he at a university, he's at Wittenberg, of all places, mm. which was the, the birthplace of Martin Luther, and, um, and he comes back to Denmark only to find this ghost of his father. He thought his father was dead. He thought his father was out of the way. But this father has a way of coming back at him and, um, and does so calling for revenge, which is a very old-fashioned way of running things. Um, Hamlet sees himself as a new man confronted all of a sudden by this sort of this atavistic um, appearance of the past, which he can't get rid of.
3: Um, Darko, before we go to, to Jim Shapiro, um, I, I know that you said that Jim Shapiro's book, in particular, was an influence to you and
5: perhaps even a spur a spur to doing
3: uh, this play at this moment. Explain what you meant
5: by that. Well, it, it was also last time that I did this. Uh, I met Jim working on a production of The Merchant of Venice with F. Marie Abraham, a production that we did in New York, a theater for a new audience. And then we took it to the Royal Shakespeare Company and... It was extraordinary to have a mind like Jim's, you know, to to be around him. And I knew that he was writing uh, 1599, A Year in the Life of Shakespeare. So I got to talk to him about the three surviving um, versions of Hamlet, that the text actually exists in three completely different forms. And those conversations formulated a great deal of that first production. And still years later, um, I'm just as influenced by his book. I think I can read entire passages. I I have them memorized. (laughs) I could do a reading of Jim's book on Hamlet. Um, But part of it was, in fact, I'm glad that Humphrey said that, um, the biggest concern was this conflict between the past and the present, Um, and perhaps specifically Catholic past of um, the ghost of the father who is in purgatory, a Catholic belief, Versus Claudius, who in his second big monologue, um, you know, voices, uh, it, it's his version of these tracts that Protestants at the time were fond of. So so I focused on that much more this time around.
3: Um, I, I want to come back to that because it's uh, it, uh, a fascinating part of this play and, and a part that doesn't usually get discussed all that much. But so, um, Jim Shapiro, you're listening to all of this. Um, One of the things that you did in this book uh, is, and we talk about a collision between the past and the present, you're talking also in the book about a different kind of collision between the past that for Shakespeare, Hamlet takes place in the past, but he's also looking at a dark political moment uh, in in his own England at that moment. And and it, it is your argument, if I understand it correctly, that a lot of the things that are there uh, in that contemporary political moment for Shakespeare in England are then reflected in Hamlet, that in a way having 3,000 people uh, show up at a theater every night in a city of 150,000 people, it's like a jumbotron where you can kind of do the news, you can kind of analyze uh, what people's anxieties are. So so say some more about that. H- how do you see Hamlet as at least to s- a certain degree an, an outgrowth of very specific um, anxieties in England at that moment?
7: Well, when I was writing this book, I was living in the year 1599, and about the only time I left that year for over a decade working on the book was to help out on productions, including the amazing one that Darko did with F. Murray Abraham on The Merchant of Venice and another really great one uh, of Anthony and Cleopatra, which is now in turn helping me think about the year I'm stuck in, 1606. Shakespeare, lived at a time when there's really no competition in terms of the media for audiences. In other words, there's no internet, radio, there hadn't been newspapers uh, circulating at that time. So theaters were where his culture came to understand itself. But there was competition. There were four or five other theaters and playing companies, and if the playwrights and actors at those companies did a better job of explaining to this Elizabethan culture, what they were going through, then Shakespeare would lose that business. So he was extraordinary at what he did, and he packed the theater, in this case the Globe Theater, with people who flocked to Hamlet, and it was acknowledged in its own day as a play that pleased all, that spoke to the political and the religious and the familial anxieties, which were many at this moment late in Queen Elizabeth's reign.
3: You know, in, in a way, Humphrey, as you're listening to this, I mean, for some Shakespeare scholars, this is um, not blasphemy exactly, but it's a rather challenging thing to say that a lot of the plays themes are specifically located in 1599. Scholarship about Shakespeare tends to argue that this is all, you know, incredibly eternal and it's all uh, relevant in, in exactly the same way all the time. Um, so I am react to what he's saying. I mean, how how intrigued are you by the specifics of 1599?
6: Well, the fact is, I would like to disagree with Jim if I could help things along that way. But the reality is, that I agree with him entirely. Mm-hmm. Um, Shakespeare wrote for the theatre. He was a he was a a company man in every sense. And um, and if he saw an opportunity to um, to to dramatize the the feelings of the people around him, in order to make money, um, he would do so. What's interesting, I think, about Hamlet, of course, is that Hamlet, um, if there is such a thing as a self indulgent side to Shakespeare. There's something vaguely self-indulgent about, about, about Hamlet. Um, it's a play that is so, so um, focused on the interior of, um, of Hamlet's mind. To say so is merely um, to repeat what people have been saying for generations. Um, it's so focused on, on the interior of his mind that, um, that, that, in effect, everything that's going on around Shakespeare at the time becomes grist to that particular mill. So so I think it's absolutely rooted in 1599, uh, particularly the, um, the, the upheaval surrounding the Earl of Essex, for example, which ties in with Laertes' behavior, and so on. There's loads of loads of parallels.
3: He kind of tips his hand a little bit in the play when, he t- when Hamlet talks about the actors being the, the abstract and brief chronicles of the time, or whatever it is he calls them. He's, he's kind of saying this, right? He's kind of saying, well, yeah, you want to
6: understand what's going on. Let's have a play. Well, right, and furthermore, you can't find facts with facts. You can only find facts with fiction. That's really what the play is saying. Um, so the, the, the play within the play can, can reveal truths which, um, which the ordinary course of events can't.
3: Um, I want to maybe come back to this historical, historical moment in a second because it's really interesting. Uh, and uh, some of the things Humphrey's alluding to uh, are, are very interesting. But before we get to that, Darko, you know, as you listen to conversations like this and we mm-hmm. played some uh, audio for you of people out in the lobby, I mean, it, it does seem as though one can bring one's own vision to Hamlet and a director uh, can have his own ideas about Hamlet. But everybody just has their own ideas anyway, right? I mean, the audience... Uh, um, I, actually, I had a completely different <laughs> reaction from Humphrey to this particular production of Hamlet, where maybe for the first time ever watching the play, I thought, you know, this is a ripping good yarn, you know? <laughs> I mean, it's actually a really good story. Uh, and, you know, that, that I thought one of the things that Darko did in this production was really let Shakespeare breathe, you know? It's kind of like, wow, well, it's really just a... It's a pretty great story. How's he going to get through this? Is he going to get through this? Um, It's pretty exciting, even if you already know the answer. It's it's kind of exciting. But, Darko, as you listen to people react, is there, I mean, uh, I wonder if there's just sort of a feeling that, wow, it's just Hamlet and it's a Rorschach plot. I mean, people come in and they project
5: what they want to see onto it. You, you know, what's odd is I agree with all of the views so far, <laughs> and they're not, they're not exclusive of each other. And, you know, people tend to talk about Shakespeare and Hamlet especially in rather self-important terms. The thing is, um, it's a great, fun play. It's a joyous thing to rehearse a great play. The, the lesser plays, that's when it gets really tough. But, you know, I just felt like throughout the rehearsal process, I staged the play. We staged it in six days, And it felt like, you know, it it felt like we couldn't go any slower because the material is so good that you just write it. Um, And a lot of it has to do with who your Hamlet is, and that's the crucial decision. That's the biggest thing decision that a director makes Uh, beyond anything design and theoretical. It's um, that's the crucial partnership, and you know, it's the longest role in Shakespeare. And with Zach, I will just say that. from the moment I heard him speak, oh, what a rogue and peasant slave am I, that that's how I hear it in my brain. I knew it was a good match. So,
3: I, I, I found one of the things about his performance is, I mean, for the people who are not Shakespearean scholars in, in the audience, which is most people, um, there's a way in which he comes on and kind of takes command and mm-hmm. says, well, if you had any trouble understanding what's been going on so far, uh, I am here to help you. Uh, <laughs> you know, I mean, there's a, just a clarity to the way that he gets this
6: material across. It's, uh, well, and, and, and he yeah. moves really fast. He just gets in there and gets on with it. Yeah, mm-hmm. um, which is which ties in with the question of ripping good yarns. Of course, mm. yeah. um, it's a good yarn because he makes it one.
5: Well, he's 29 years old. This is his tenth production. Of Shakespeare, um, of Shakespeare's, it's not a starter role, and it's very tough to find a young Hamlet who has taken the proper steps. The actor who has taken proper steps on the way to the role, and so I feel very lucky that I'm working with him.
3: Um, Jim Shapiro, I just want to come back to this historical and political moment because uh, um, sure. Humphrey l- alluded to uh, some of it, and and uh, maybe it's worth fleshing out. It might be one of the things that someone coming to Hamlet wouldn't know about and wouldn't think about. So England at this time, it's kind of weird. They're, I think you say in the book it's a crossroads uh, between the end of chivalry and the beginning of globalism, although nobody in England knows that globalism is about to begin. In fact, what they think, I think, is that you know if there's if there's an anxiety bubbling around in people it's not oh wow we're going to be this great uh, global empire thanks to the east india company and a lot of other stuff i wonder what that's going to be like what they're thinking is wow we're getting our butt kicked in ireland right now we're, you know, we're maybe we're not so cool and so it's kind of a little it's a little bit of a post 9/11 feeling in uh, in england at that moment
7: would you i think i think that's a really good way of thinking about it and combine that with really ang- a great deal of anxiety about who's going to rule when queen elizabeth who's been queen since 1558 and this is 1599 1600 already is going to die and she has forbidden anyone from talking about her successor because she knows as soon as you do that it's kind of like obama today and hillary it's it's over it's a lame duck regime so a great deal is swirling about at this moment. I have to say, when I go to these plays, I'm not looking for some kind of archaeological reconstruction of what feelings were like in, in 1600. Not only is that impossible, it's, it's dumb. People were different then. Their preoccupations were different then. Their lifespans were different. I go to a production like Darko's to understand our cultural moment, what our preoccupations are, One of the extraordinary things about Shakespeare is that this play has managed to reinvent itself for 400 years and directors and actors figure out what is in the DNA of this play that still is alive and connects with our concerns. So I'm excited about seeing this production.
3: Um, Just to sort of wrap up this part of it too, I mean, Humphrey, I'm also wondering whether Hamlet... Is the whether the play is kind of a departure in in the way that it looks at royalty? I'm not a good enough Shakespeare scholar or anyone at all to to, to have a sense of this, but you know I'm thinking about what you just talked about, you know, Robert Devereux, the uh, the Earl who comes back, I think from Ireland. This right. is in, in real life, comes back and I think bursts into Elizabeth's chambers, not unlike Hamlet in, in Gertrude's closet. Uh, and and one senses in Hamlet that. That everything's much more up for grabs in a lot of ways. That 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 nobility and and royalty don't necessarily solidify anything. That everything is in complete chaos.
6: I think there's some truth to that. the The fact is, of course, that Shakespeare relatively recently had finished and and had performed um, Henry V, mm-hmm. which was the end of a sequence of plays dealing with the, dealing with royalty in England, and one of the things that That Shakespeare discovers in in Henry V is the, the 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 notion of the interior life of the king and and that attracts him, causes him to to use some of those same ideas in in Julius Caesar and then it carries over into Hamlet. But the fact is, of course, that he's he's thinking about royalty in a quite different way, in a quite different context, um from the way in which he's been thinking about royalty in the history plays.
3: Yeah, I mean, in some ways, what Hamlet doesn't have Darko, is the exterior <laughs> life of the king. I mean, we mostly just see behind the scenes. We almost never see kings and princes really being kings and princes, even to the extent that they are in Henry V. Get, can you
5: clarify that? Well, just, I yes. mean,
3: we don't see them ruling. We don't see them leading. We basically, sure. basically see them sure. just
5: having all kinds of terrible problems with each other. Yes. Yeah. Well, and with Hamlet, of course, he's not chosen for the succession for whatever reason, and it's very ambiguous. It's Claudius. It's the, it's the new king. And in the beginning, um, I must say, in the first few monologues, he comes off as a very effective ruler. Yeah. You, <laughs> you see, can I completely think. see why somebody would choose Claudius yeah. over Hamlet. I'm not sure
6: I would agree with you, Colin, about <laughs> right, that because, because at the very beginning, that yeah. first speech of mm-hmm. Claudius is all about his setting himself mm-hmm. up as king, mm-hmm. um, and, and it's very effective.
5: It, it's a dazzling piece of rhetoric. Yeah. it's uh, And the way that it weds the marriage to the current political issues and skips over it, mm-hmm. in a sense, why the marriage is necessary. It's fascinating. Um, so, yeah. um, All right. We're going to take a quick break here. When we come back, uh, we're going to talk more we're, we're, with our panel. We do invite you to chime
3: in. People are tweeting at WNPR Colin, but you can also call in. We're live in the afternoon, 860-275-7266. 860-275-7266. What does Hamlet mean to you? How do you read the play? How do you watch the play? I sound like Tom Ashbrook. All right, we'll take a break. We'll come back.
1: You kill him quick and clean and tell the nation
5: what a fraud he is. The kid said, right, like, I'll do it, but I'll have to play it crafty so that nobody suspects me. I'll pretend that I am daft.
1: So to all except Horatio, he counts him as a friend. Hamlet, that's the kid. He pretends he's round the bend
3: handle it, by the way, you're welcome to call in, 860-275-7266. Darko, just find out we were live. Uh, and uh, so Dr. Treznik is here, Humphrey Tonkin, uh, professor of English and pr- pr- uh, and our go-to Shakespeare scholar, uh, James Shapiro, uh, professor of English at Columbia University. He's uh, joining us from the studios of Columbia. Uh, you're going to hear from Diane Venora, the acclaimed actress, in just a second. Um, and we'd love to hear from you, 860-275-7266. Um, Darko, I, I want to just spend a moment on hamlet himself and and uh, on your choices and decisions about this you have a 28 year old uh, actor that uh, you've chosen to play hamlet um he's hamlet's been understood differently at different times throughout history in terms of just who this person is but uh, let's just start with wh- who is he to you who did you who did you think he really
5: needed to be in this production um one of the first decisions based on my understanding of the text is i wanted to get a young hamlet um, personally and I understand why actors, when they get a great deal of clout, and if they haven't done the role in their 20s, they want to do it in 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, <laughs> but um, I think on the pages you know, given what Shakespeare writes, he's a young man that is referred to again and again in a scene with uh, his mother, with Gertrude, there's a moment where he says that at her age, she cannot possibly be feeling these sexual passions. Mm-hmm. And I love it when the women in the audience laugh mm-hmm. <laughs> knowingly. And of course, it's completely distasteful from a 40-something-year-old, but you can understand it in a 20-something-year-old character, because a lot of students would say that a lot of 20-year-olds um, see age that way. And um The other thing that was huge, and Zach and I were on the same page with this, is I'm not going to reduce Hamlet by saying that he's a Catholic or a Protestant, but his psychology cannot be separated from the fact that he's a religious human being. The very first time he talks to the audience, he says that, oh, that the Everlasting had not fixed his canon against self-slaughter, oh God, God. uh, later in Owata oh, what a Rogue speech the spirit that I have seen may be the devil and the devil have power to assume a pleasing shape from speech to speech I don't think we can separate Hamlet's psychology from his faith in God <laughs> and that to and that, to me, is something that um, when I was growing up, people didn't really talk about it, and I was like, it's in every speech. How do mm-hmm. you ignore that? So I heard much more about Hamlet having issues with his mother, mm-hmm. <laughs> Freudian interpretations, but the divinity was largely ignored when I was learning this play. And well, that well, bugs me.
3: Let's yeah. stay with that, that idea for yeah. a second. And j- So James Shapiro, I mean, either filtering it through the prism of 1599 or, or any prism you happen to have sitting up there uh, in uh, Morningside Heights, um, uh, how, how does what Darkos is saying, h- how does it sound to you, and to what degree do you think Shakespeare really did intend this to be uh, so specifically a religious play?
7: Everyone's grandparents in Shakespeare's audience were Catholic. Their parents were Protestant, for the most part, maybe a few holding on to the old faith, but everyone felt the tension between the faith that England had once held and then abandoned and the one that was professed officially by the state, Protestant faith, at this time. Shakespeare understands that and sets this play on that razor's edge. On the other hand, talking about what Darko is describing as the essence of Hamlet, what's fascinating about this play is how one model of Hamlet replaces another. In the Romantic period, people like Coleridge saw him as, they saw themselves as brooding intellectuals incapable of acting. And you still see some of those hamlets. You see, as Darko described, the Freudian hamlet, the the man who can't kill Claudius because in doing that, he'd be acting out his own edible impulses to kill his father and sleep with his mother. And what I hear Darko describing is a return to a more spiritual Hamlet, one that recognizes those elements in the play that were largely suppressed, let's say, when I was in college and, and taught the uh, the Freudian or Oedipal Hamlet. So I always ask my students when I walk in the first day of Hamlet, you know, why does Hamlet delay and what's this about? And sometimes I hear kids say, well, you know, 20 milligrams of X or Y and he would have been fine. So we're, we're moving towards a kind of therapeutic way of thinking about Hamlet, but Ugh. I like the spiritual. <laughs> I like the spiritual angle that that uh, Darko's describing.
3: There's no question that uh, if Othello and Desdemona had access to good marital counseling, uh, a lot of this sure. stuff would uh, would have gone very differently. But um, so um, I want to say with religion for a second, but I, I want to hear from Humphrey a lot of different ways. Although, Humphrey, as we walk into Darko's theater, uh, we see the set, which is an enormous, bejeweled cross. And so it's. Um, I, I did walk in with Bill Curry, and we both read Darko's interview where he says there's religion on every page. And Bill Curry said, wow, I guess he wasn't kidding. Um, <laughs> um, you know, how unusual is this, the emphasis on the religious nature and, and the religious conflict that's in the play?
6: Um, that's hard to answer, because you see, I don't think that that Darko's production is as religious as he makes it seem. Um, I think what's interesting about about Hamlet is that, and indeed any other character, is that Hamlet uses the uses the 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 images, the ideas that are floating around in the air to talk about the things he wants to talk about. So inevitably, it's not just Hamlet talking to himself, it's Hamlet talking to an audience. Mm-hmm. And that audience has a certain understanding that it brings into the theater. So that's what Hamlet uses. And what Hamlet is using right here is, is indeed um, a kind of religious nostalgia. Um, and one of the interesting questions, which never gets solved, because no questions in Hamlet get solved, as you probably know, there are more question marks in Hamlet than in any other play of Shakespeare. Um, what's um, the, 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 big, the big question... Um, sitting behind all this is, um, is, is not Protestantism versus Catholicism. It's, it's the continued presence of the past versus getting on with it. And, um, and of course, what Claudius does at the beginning of the play is say, let's get on with it, because he doesn't want to have to deal with the past. And it's very important for him to move things forward. By the same token, um, Hamlet unfortunately, because of the appearance of the ghost and what the ghost has to tell him, is obliged to deal with that with that, that past. And that's the central tension. It's not a tension about religion so much as a tension about different ways of thinking about the past.
3: We can come back to that if we have time. I do want to say, first of all, I am recommended, speaking of the question marks, to the Hartford Stage Company that in between now and election day, that all undecided voters get a 10% discount. Um, <laughs> but uh, it seems like a natural promotion, but uh, nobody's taking uh, me up on it. Um, but just in terms of sort of all the ways in which Hamlet, Hamlet the person, Hamlet the actor, uh, Hamlet the character, can be understood, I thought it would be interesting to talk to Diane Venora. Back in 1982-83, uh, she played uh, Hamlet, which was, well, you'll hear about this. Let's see. It's about a six-minute conversation I had earlier this week with Diane Venora. There are so many things to love about the career of Diane Venora. Uh, She's one of the favorite, if not the favorite actress of uh, the McEnroe household, my son and I both love Heat and the Jackal and Romeo and Juliet and Wolfen. We love the fact that she's from Hartford. But when it comes to Shakespeare and when it comes to Hamlet, she has a remarkable distinction. Not only has she played, uh, let's see, Gertrude to Ethan Hawke's Hamlet and Ophelia to uh, Kevin Klein's Hamlet, but she's played Hamlet. And so let's start there, Diane Wolfen. It's 1982, 1983, something like that, and Joseph Papp approaches you about starring in the role of Hamlet. Now, the idea was not for you to play Hamlet as a woman, but for you to play Hamlet as a man. And so what was his argument for this? I mean, this wasn't an unheard of thing. In the 19th century, it was almost common to try this. But what was Papp's argument for doing it this way?
0: He felt that there were qualities in Hamlet that were not like the iconic Olivier Gielgud and even what Kevin had done. He felt that a female could bring something to it that he hadn't seen. And for me, he was an adolescent. Mm -hmm. He was on the precipice of manhood. So for me, the edge was the tortured teen, mercurial or explosive, you know, dysphoric. That's how I felt.
3: And, I mean, this is sort of part of an evolution, right? I mean, as I say, in the 19th century, Sarah Bernhardt, Sarah Siddons, uh, um, yes. Alice Marriott, uh, there's this whole long series of women who played ha- Hamlet. And when men played Hamlet, classical actors like Edwin, Edwin Booth, for example, yes. would say, you know, really it's my job to find the prominent femininity that's in this character I have to play him his pensiveness is is seemed at least to a 19th century temperament to be essentially feminine but you were kind of interrupting as you're suggesting now a long string of kind of macho power hamlets Olivier Burton Nicole Williamson Stacey uh, Keach, people like that right
0: it wasn't conscious at the time Mm -hmm. it was just the exploration of the text since I had not seen those performances I had no idea So I just went with the text. What does the text say? I had covered my mirrors in the dressing room so I wouldn't have an image of myself as Diane. Just to feel it inside because when the language and the breath and the support and the analysis of a text, you breathe through it, the play would play me. It was almost like flying some nights. You just get in the wavelength of that iambic and the words and it just goes whoa Mm -hmm. I was new to Shakespeare I never claimed to be you know a great Hamlet or I just played what Joe wanted and I also enjoyed the script
3: do you see it though primarily as a psychological play I mean no matter what role you're playing whether you're Ophelia Gertrude Hamlet is this a psychological study of a young man in crisis I mean it it can also be understood obviously as a story about a nation in crisis about a political structure in crisis
0: Yes, I felt that political thing very strongly. I never put a concept when I'm working. I let the play come to me and speak to me on its own. It's like alchemy. You you let it come. This play is extremely physical to me. And in that physical connection, all the emotions come. But I didn't play it for psychological depth because it's so much written about it. And I'm not an academic.
3: You know, there's an interesting thing that you say, because some people would say, well, in some ways, this is the most interioristic uh, of Shakespeare's plays. So much of what's going on is a conversation going on inside Hamlet. So when you say it's a very physical play, are you talking about the, I mean, obviously there's a sword fight and there's sexuality uh, going on between him and Ophelia, between him and uh, Gertrude. Is that what you mean by physical play?
0: That's one aspect of it. Here, I'll give you an example. When, Joe, we did the um, Art Thou Ver, True Penny, There's someone in the cellarage, and you hear, swear. I felt there was a possession, like I was possessed by my father's words. He was killed by the poison in his ear. So when he spoke to me about what happened, I suddenly physically felt he was pouring poison in my ear. So what it did was it brought me up, and a sound came out of me that brought me to my knees. Mm. Then I got up and then I began to move like a possessed person and I jumped up on this pillar and all the actors came in and said how are you you know hamlet and, I, and my, my line was oh fine like you know and of course it brought a laugh and then I jumped down and said now do this do this do this and my hair swear and all of a sudden my body just reverberated from the feet up to the head and my sword moved out as if it was moving on its own and I went up 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 and it swirled Every time it got more and more, and finally I'm on a bench like four feet off the ground, and when it said, rest, rest, I flew into the air on, rest! (laughs) Okay, and then, and bam, it was gone. Then Horatio picks me up, and the time is out of joint. So it became physical in its expression because the language to me is so physical. Now, another director could say, great, now that you've done that, stand center, keep all of that interior, and now just speak. But Joe allowed me the physicalization because he had never seen it.
3: Um, Diane Venora, last question. You've been very generous with your time. All of this argues for the idea that the possibility for interpretation of this play is almost endless and that you almost can't make a mistake. I mean, last year, Yale rep did Hamlet with Paul Giamatti uh, as Hamlet. People said, well, he's too old, he's too schlubby, he's too nevishy, he can't possibly be Hamlet. I actually really liked the production a lot. But, I mean, would your take be, well... You you could try almost anything that plays that universal?
0: Whoever plays Hamlet, he owns it. And the director is key on how he sees it and what is the lens you're looking through. So absolutely, it is endless.
3: Diane Venora, thank you very much for your time.
0: Thank you. Bye.
3: All right, so um, just to respond to that a little bit, and one of our guests, I won't say which one, and I are not really on the same page about that Yale Reproduction, uh, but... Um, you know, James Shapiro, to the point of masculinity, all right, so, um, you know, in, in all the ways that, that uh, you heard in that conversation, masculinity has been reinterpreted within the context of Hamlet uh, in a lot of different ways. And certainly in the 19th century, the idea that you, you would be pensive and indecisive was just not seen as one of the attributes of a man. But it seems as though, really, in life, that's what we do all the time as we look at male leaders. We're constantly asking ourselves, you know, is this the is this my idea of how— a male leader behaves, and and I'm wondering, to, to in Shakespeare's time, was was there a specific comment being made on, on Hamlet as a masculine potential leader of a nature of a nation?
7: One of the things that Darko brought up earlier is that there are three surviving texts of Hamlet. There is the so-called First Quarto, which is probably a version derived from actors who took it on the road, that came out in 1603. A year later, the second quarto came out, and two decades later, the folio version came out. And the reason I say that is, if you look at the first quarto, it is a much more macho Hamlet. And if you've ever seen, and it's done once in a while, a first quarto Hamlet, it is a kind of uh, Schwarzenegger, Uh, revenge, really superhero-type Hamlet. And it's a little disconcerting because how do you get to the much more, if you will, uh, balanced sense of masculinity which we find in the second quarter or especially in the Folio Hamlet? So there are different texts that suggest different levels of this and uh, they all have very complicated histories.
3: Although Humphrey, uh, some might say, well, if this is balanced masculinity, give me imbalanced masculinity because it just doesn't really work out all that well. I mean, how how are we meant to regard the way that Hamlet, as a man,
6: faces the challenges of a man? Well, I'm not sure I can answer that question because um, it's a complicated question to say the least. But um, a point that that is worth emphasizing, I think, is that that the the episode with um, with Claudius praying, which which Darko your Claudius did in such an interesting way. It's most unusual to 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 play that particular scene the way he did. Um, S-
3: say just for the listener, what's what's unusual about um, it? Um
6: well you you frequently see him kneeling, praying, hmm. um, unable for to get his words to fly up. Um but but Darko's Claudius moved around, was very energetic. And um and so his um his, his inner conflict was very much externalized, which mm-hmm. was, I thought, very nice. Um, now, of course, Hamlet doesn't kill him at that particular point for whatever reason. He immediately afterwards takes action when he thinks that he's behind the Arras and ends up killing Polonius. What's interesting about all that is that you have a complete revenge tragedy leading up to the point where Hamlet comes in on Claudius, and we could end the play there. Within a single scene, the whole thing has been moved forward again. So if masculinity is about stabbing people behind arises, that's a dead loss. This doesn't work out the way that it should work out. Um, and and what's, what's remarkable, I think, about the play is that, is that there are no answers to any questions. And yet the symmetry with which the second half is worked out in relation to the first half is spectacularly beautiful. Um, leading, of course, to disaster at the end. The one other thing, Colin, that I would mention is that, um, of course, there are many different ways, even in the nineteenth century, in which Hamlet was played. And um, and if you look at the history of of Hamlet, particularly in Germany and Russia, um, and in in fact, generally on um, on the continent of Europe, the idea of of Hamlet as a seeker after truth, a, a sort of single-mindedly seeking out truth, was very common in productions in the nineteenth century. So we need to consider that as well, I think.
3: Um, just as we round out this segment, we've got to go to break, uh, Darko, but in selecting, just back to your selection uh, of the actor you selected, mm-hmm. you're, you're making a comment uh, on on Hamlet's masculinity, uh, on well, how you see that playing out. Well,
5: here's what's interesting about what Diane Venora said, and I love that she's a part of this conversation because she's so revered in New York. People talk about her performances as being life-changing. But what's interesting is um, there's one Difference between American men and English men on stage. Americans are afraid, the men are afraid to use the higher range notes in their voices. The English are much, English actors are much less scared of that kind of vulnerability coming through their voices. And so with Hamlet, I had to have somebody who's not afraid of that. And if you listen to Zach, you know, the way he says, Hecuba, and stuff, there are moments where he's not afraid of that. And I imagine they end an Nora, As a woman, was not afraid of it at all, so that she was able to bring that vulnerability. But it's the one problem that I encounter because if it's all of those bottom notes, you don't get the full range of Shakespeare's music. Uh, Let's grab a quick break here. We'll come back. We're gonna have a very short final segment uh, because it's all just spinning away from us.
2: (laughs) Wait a minute, you're telling me you built a time machine
1: in a DeLorean? Yes, and you can go back in time and make sure your uncle doesn't kill your father. And retake my philosophy
2: exam at Wittenberg.
1: Yes, but the father thing is a bigger deal, right? Oh, yeah,
2: totally. Today's show was produced by Betsy Kaplan and me, with massive assistance from Josh Naleya. Thanks also to intern Nia Tyler. Greg Hill appeared in our intro and tweets for us at WNPR Colin. The part of Bill Curry was played by Steve Coogan. For show pages, articles, and audio of Hamlet's phone call to the Things You Wish You Could Do Over episode of the Faith Middleton Show, visit our website, wnpr.org. On tomorrow's nose, Zellweger's new face, and the generational war among women. And now, back to Colin.
5: Out of the characters you saw in Hamlet tonight, is there one character in particular that you feel like you can really relate to on a
4: personal level? I hope not. (laughs) I hope not on the one hand, and on the other hand, every last one of them you know we come to great literature and not to find out about the characters but to find out about ourselves and to find ourselves in them everything about Hamlet and so many of the characters if you didn't see yourself in it go look again uh, because it's there to be found
1: I think all of us have had situations or circumstances in life where we've been hurt and we have to process that anger and we had to process those emotions, and I think there obviously are healthy, healthy and unhealthy ways to do that. But I think Shakespeare, you know, just in Hamlet, reveals what perhaps all of us have thought, at least in our heart and minds, of what we might do to even the score. And so I think, I think on that level, I can relate to Hamlet. I think I relate to him
2: because he struggled to know how to accomplish what was in his heart. I mean, he eventually got there but he wasted a lot of time. (laughs) I feel that way too sometimes, so, yeah. Uh,
3: That's uh, audio collected at Hartford Stage Company uh, by our uh, fine Josh Nilea. Um, also, the entirety of my conversation with Diane Venora, which is longer than what you heard, will be available at wnpr.org. You know, um, uh, in the first uh, audio of, of that kind that we played, Darko, there was, uh, I think, uh, one of those strange people talking in the lobby uh, talked about how the, there are, there's laughter in this play. There's laughter in the mm-hmm. audience in this play. And Humphrey and I both did see a play uh, down at Yale, version of Hamlet, that in, certainly in the first act, actually both acts, um, you know, there are Mel Brooks movies that didn't get that many laughs. Uh, and, and I mean, this certainly runs counter to people's expectations of Hamlet. I think if you tell, tell someone, we're gonna go see Hamlet, they think, okay, I'm gonna see this dark, moody thing with very rich and beautiful language and psychological insight. They don't expect to laugh. Are you surprised where the audience laughs at, at your production?
5: Oh no, I expect it, like clockwork. Um, I actually always thought that Hamlet regardless of who plays and should get laughs he's you know he's uh, yes there is the side struggling with God with father with the new kingdom with the new politics Um, at times also he's very rude and very ageist and very sexist especially Mm -hmm. scenes with Polonius Mm -hmm. and with Ophelia and Gertrude Shakespeare never wrote a role model he wasn't interested in that Um, they're complex human beings and humor is a huge part of it and so um, it, I just love it. The more laughs we find without prostituting ourselves, those are good laughs, and I love it when we get them.
3: Humphrey, do you feel as though the humor, I mean, I think in this particular, production in particular, the humor shifts around at certain points. Sometimes we're laughing with Hamlet, and then sometimes we're laughing almost at how awful he's becoming.
6: Yes, I think that's true. And, and of course, he's a great ironist. Um, he has a sense of irony that virtually nobody else in the play has. In, in fact, nobody in the play has. And it's funny. Of course it is. And and indeed, the sheer, um, the sheer horror of what we're dealing with induces laughter.
3: And, and James Shapiro, I'm assuming that um, uh, in its original productions, um, this would have been a very raucous audience. 3,000 people, right, maybe uh, could fit into that theater. I'm assuming this would be an audience that would choose its own reactions uh, pretty freely to a play like this one.
7: What's amazing about this play is Shakespeare doesn't have a fully fledged comic star in his company. They just lost a guy named Will Kemp, who was their funny man. And somehow Shakespeare writes a play in which Hamlet's not just a, a crown prince, but he's almost a clown prince. And Burbage, who gets to play this part for the first time at the Globe for those 3,000 people, gets a lot of laughs. And it must have been thrilling for him, not just to play the Romeo, the Richard III, the brooding, tragic figure, but one who has this other side. So it's one of the great, great roles ever for any actor.
3: All right, uh, and we there we have to stop. This has been a, a lot of fun. First of all, I really absolutely do encourage you, uh, if it's not obvious already, uh, to go see Dr. Trusnick's uh, direction of Hamlet uh, at the Hartford Stage Company. While it's playing, we also extend our thanks to Humphrey Tonkin, Professor of English and President Emeritus at the University of Hartford, James Shapiro, Professor of English at Columbia and the author of many books, including A Year in the Life of Shakespeare. That's 1599. He has joined us from the studios of Columbia University uh, in New York City. Thanks also to Diane Venora for making time, uh, we'll be back tomorrow with a nose.
6: His heart and soul are cut and flee.
2: You're, going mad, You're going mad, Hamlet. You're going mad, Hamlet. You're going mad, Hamlet. You're going mad, Hamlet. To be or not to be, that is the question. Be or be not.
1: There is no question.
2: So, you're saying I should be?
1: The question you must be.
2: So, I can't understand you. It's like you're speaking Shakespeare.